0: Prohibition is one of the most iconic eras in America's cultural history. It was the age of jazz, the great Gatsby, of Al Capone and Elliot Ness, a time of prosperity and excess after the horrors of World War I and before the coming trials of the Great Depression and World War II. It was a time of cultural integration, in which the millions of immigrants who had entered the country in the preceding decades began to assimilate into and influence American society, and Americans across the lines of class, ethnicity, and gender were brought together by shared contempt for a law that was almost universally defied. Yet the Roaring Twenties had its dark currents, too. The ugly forces of racism and xenophobia that had played a significant role in passing the 18th Amendment continued to loom large. The nation had its first Red Scare, immigration was greatly restricted, and the Ku Klux Klan, which was strongly in favor of Prohibition, reached the apex of its power. Prohibition will be covered in a series of episodes, maybe a whole season on this podcast. But this episode is about a project that I came across that provides a wonderful data-driven illustration of how Prohibition played out in a particular city, a city that was perhaps more culturally resistant than anywhere else to Prohibition, New Orleans. New Orleans has long been known for its diversity and liberal cultural norms, founded in 1817 by French settlers and named for France's regent at the time, Philippe II of Orléans, it was later transferred to spanish rule then back to france before napoleon sold it to the united states in the louisiana purchase it became the refuge of cajun french forced to flee the british invasion of canada and both white and mixed-race french creoles fleeing the slave revolution in haiti it was the site of andrew jackson's famous victory over the british in the war of 1812 and a major port of the transatlantic slave trade Later in the 19th century, waves of immigrants arrived from Ireland, Germany, and Italy, making New Orleans, along with places like New York and San Francisco, one of America's most important melting pots. When Jim Crow laws were passed in Louisiana, it was the well-educated community of color in New Orleans that tried to challenge segregation by having Homer Plessy attempt to ride a whites-only train car leading to the infamous Supreme Court decision Plessy vs. Ferguson that established the doctrine of separate but equal. By the late 1800s, New Orleans had become a major tourist destination, particularly for people from the South and Midwest looking for a respite from their conservative surroundings. By this point the temperance movement was spreading, and conservative states, towns, and counties were beginning to go dry, while the thousands of bars in New Orleans continued to serve up their famous cocktails. So, how did this city, famous then and now for its Mardi Gras celebration and bar culture, react to prohibition? A few months ago, I came across a project that addresses this question by documenting prohibition raids in New Orleans. The project is called Intemperance Archive. You can find it online at intemperance.org. In this episode of Cocktail History, I discuss the project and the history of Prohibition in New Orleans with the creator of the Intemperance Archive, Boston College adjunct professor Hannah Griggs. Welcome to Cocktail History. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson. Episode 4, Prohibition in the Land of Mardi Gras. Hannah, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: So to paint a picture for our listeners, Intemperance Archive is basically a digital map of prohibition raids in the city of New Orleans. If you head over to intemperance.org, you can browse through the map, which is a historical map of the city, and it's covered with pins that represent the location of different prohibition raids. They're color-coded by year, and each location has some information about the raid, including a newspaper headline like, for instance, 918 Chilupita Street Raids So Dismays Saloon Keeper That He Faints. I want to tell us a little bit about what the Intemperance uh, archive is and how it came about.
1: So Intemperance started as a final project for a grad seminar um, when I was getting my master's degree. I started out wanting to make a map of all the bars in New Orleans from Reconstruction through the Great Depression, um, which was, needless to say, a very overzealous endeavor. Um, (laughs) And I also really didn't know what I was doing at the time. I was still trying to figure out all these tools and thinking about visualization and mapping. But in my research, I kept coming across all of these bars that were being raided by prohibition agents. And at the time, I knew very little about prohibition. And after finding all of these places, uh, they just kept coming up over and over again. I realized that the tools I was using would be really conducive to or perhaps more appropriate for a map of these raids.
0: So the information comes from the Times uh, Picayune, which is a New Orleans uh, newspaper going back to before Prohibition, right?
1: Oh yeah, way, way before Prohibition.
0: And is it still around?
1: It is, it's, it is is still around. Yeah, um as survived something.
0: into the digital age. <laughs> Indeed,
1: so it's nola.com.
0: Could you give us a little portrait of uh, what cocktail culture, drinking culture was like uh, during this time in New Orleans?
1: New Orleans has, long been a Mecca for decadent culture and and cultural deviancy, we might say. Um, It was known as a city of eternal decadence. And before Prohibition, New Orleans served as, and continues to be, a place of pleasurable pilgrimage for people across the South and and the nation uh, who want to escape from their comparatively conservative uh, social structures. So for a lot of people, particularly in the late 19th century, that meant visiting the old absent house, which is still on Bourbon Street, or Storyville, which was the red light district of New Orleans, which no longer exists. And New Orleans was, you know, known for its tolerance in those aspects.
0: Yeah, It's cool that its, it's reputation as sort of an oasis of more liberal mores, goes back that far to before prohibition. How far back do you think that goes?
1: Oh, since the very beginning. <laughs> There's this great uh, quote that I have on my website by Henry Bradshaw Firon from 1819, and he says, To all men whose desire only is to be rich and to live a short life but a merry one, I have no hesitation in recommending New Orleans. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've, I've read that um, in particular its reputation as a bar city uh, arose in the 1890 when it started getting a lot more tourism. Um, and uh, old-timey saloons were popular. And uh, David Wondrich and imbibed notes that uh, a lot of these, quote, old-timey saloons were actually only like 10, 20 years old. But like they they took on the style of like the Wild West saloon. It was almost like a kitschy tourist thing from back in the 1890s.
1: Yeah, yeah, and tourism boomed in the 1870s, and in the 1880s, you started, there was a, an economic boom, um, yeah. so you start seeing the rise of the middle class, lots of people are moving into New Orleans and starting these bars and people, you know, it's already a culture that drank a lot, so you yeah. see a lot of people, um, you see a lot of people just flocking to these places. There's this great little story I found right when I started to research cocktail culture from a 1919 issue of the Photo Engravers Bulletin. It recounts a group of seven men waiting at the train station for E.C. Miller, who was the president of the Photo Engravers Association, and they had a national conference that was being hosted in New Orleans that year. And Miller didn't show up to the train station, so they went to his hotel room and found him drunk in his bathtub with a Sazerac cocktail in one hand, a Ramos gin fizz in the other, and an Hen cocktail in a shaving cup. (laughs) And the story ends with, he seemed to become acclimated almost immediately. That's one of my favorite stories from pre-prohibition New Orleans. I think it's just epitomizes what people thought of New Orleans and and how they treated drinking in the city at the time. So, but for regular New Orleanians who were largely Catholic and of some sort of European ancestry, drinking was a part of everyday life. It wasn't something to be demonized, nor was it something in which one should indulge in the extreme, much like it is today. Largely because of its French ancestry, New Orleans was particularly fond of absinthe and anise-flavored drinks, like, you always drink absinthe on Mardi gras Um and New Orleans is home of these great cocktails like the Ramos Gin Fizz and the Sazerac and the Ohin cocktail, and imbibing was and is something to celebrate and enjoy with friends and family.
0: Just to give our listeners a quick rundown of the cocktails you mentioned, because they're all kind of classic New Orleans drinks. So the Sazerac, which is probably the most famous cocktail to come out of New Orleans, it's basically an old-fashioned made with rye uh, and Pichaud's bitters, which were invented in New Orleans. Um, and served in a glass that's been rinsed with absinthe. Then the Ramos Gin Fizz was invented in the 1890s by Carl Ramos of the Imperial Cabinet Bar in New Orleans Business District. It's made with Old Tom Gin, lemon and lime juice, egg whites, cream, orange flower water, sugar, and seltzer, at least in the original recipe. Supposedly it was so popular that Ramos needed to buy 5,000 eggs a week.
1: I mean, I've never heard that before. That's yeah, so much yeah, that's
0: another David Wandrich and vibe gem. If you, do you want to talk a little bit about Ohen and what mm-hmm. that Ohen is a an anise flavored liquor from Ohen, Spain. That's um, long had a relationship with New Orleans.
1: So Ohen was incredibly popular um, starting in the early 20th century, and it was after absinthe was banned uh, in 1912, New Orleans had the, like a loved anise-flavored drinks. Um, so they had a lot of different types of, um, of anise-flavored drinks in circulation that started in New Orleans um, during this time. And so O'Hen was what mm-hmm. New Orleans preferred. And so the O'Hen cocktail, which is a shot of O'Hen, a few dashes of Peychaud's bitters with a splash of seltzer over ice became wildly popular during Mardi Gras. Starting around the 1940s. Cool.
0: And I guess Ohan has just recently returned to the US mm-hmm. as of uh, this past year. Yes. It was not being imported for a couple decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So in the late 80s, um, a group of New Orleans businessmen got together and bought 500 cases from the <laughs> Ohan distillery. In Spain, uh, when the distillery was going to shut down, so this was about six thousand bottles, and they huh. sold out in two thousand nine. Was when the last bottle
0: was sold. Wow!
1: And it's recently been resurrected by um,
0: the Sazerac Company. The Sazerac Company. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: But yeah, so it's it's come back. Uh, I don't know how much how big of a comeback it'll be, but
0: uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure in New Orleans it will be. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> So, by the time Prohibition was enacted, New Orleans was home to 5,000 bars in a city of 350,000. Even before the Volstead Act passed, there were an increasing number of restrictions on the consumption of alcohol. The Gay-Shattuck Law passed in 1909, which segregated white and black citizens in drinking places. It forbade gambling inside drinking establishments and prohibited liquor from being sold within 300 feet of a school. Absinthe, of course, uh, was banned in 1912, but once the Prohibition Act was passed, it was devastating for New Orleans, absolutely devastating. There's one story in particular that I think epitomizes how New Orleanians felt about the enactment. Um, In 1921, a man named Salvador Segreto lived on the 800 block of Decatur Street, where Magnolia Proline Company is now, which is on the same block as Tujac's, which is one of the oldest restaurants in New Orleans. He lived there with his wife and eight children, and his home was raided by federal prohibition agents, and 22 barrels of raisin wine or straw wine were found. The agents dumped all of it onto the street. The article in the Times-Tagy Union states, for a full 20 minutes, it literally rained perfectly good homemade wine. And like, that's a lot of wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One barrel of wine holds 60 gallons, so this is right. about 1,300 gallons of wine flowing down Decatur Street in New Orleans. And this obviously drew a really large crowd. The Times Weekend has this really grainy photo of the agents releasing wine into the street and underneath the picture, the caption reads, the big crowd clustering around the agents to watch the drink flow and wept.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's an amazing story, It's such
1: a beautiful story and I think it just epitomizes how people felt about prohibition laws. It was just so devastating. It was a law that took Something that people had always done and made it illegal. It it turned common people into criminals and they could only sit and watch as this vital mainstay of New Orleanian culture was taken away from them. It It was profoundly traumatic and it was also infuriating for so many people. But that being said, it didn't stop people in New Orleans from drinking and prohibition agents knew that. New Orleans was called the worst wet spot in the country and there were thousands and thousands of prohibition raids in New Orleans. And the historical record is actually woefully incomplete when it comes to these events. And the raids I've documented in my exhibit are only a fraction of these raids. For example, in 1920, there were 2,400 arrests made uh, for violations of the Prohibition Act, but by 1922 there were 12,500 arrests made, and the number only went up from there. Wow. Yeah. In, in 1925, a special team of Prohibition agents descended on New Orleans. One dry agent from Texas said that he had never seen so much liquor in all of his experience. One raid in which he took part netted, he said, more whiskey than had been caught in his entire home district. <laughs> So there's a lot of liquor going around. (laughs) There's this really famous story about um, Isidore Izzy Einstein, who was one of the most famous undercover prohibition agents in the U.S., and he visited various cities in the U.S. to see which cities he could buy liquor the fastest, (laughs) and New Orleans naturally won. (laughs) Uh, Within 35 seconds of arriving, he stepped off his train and was offered a pint of liquor from a taxi driver.
0: Wow. Um, yeah, prohibition uh, represented a pretty dramatic escalation of the, the federal role in law enforcement. A Bureau of Prohibition was established in the Treasury Department. Um, that was what Elliot Ness worked for and all these famous mm-hmm. prohibition agents. And they sent agents all over the country to enforce prohibition, partly, I imagine, because they didn't trust the local law enforcement. And I'm sure in New Orleans, which was you know a place both known as a city of sin and known for corruption, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't have had a lot of trust in the local cops to be enforcing prohibition.
1: No. <laughs> no. And and you could buy liquor almost anywhere or, you know, pretty much right. anywhere. In addition to restaurants and bars, you could find it in pool rooms, groceries, soft drink stands, fruit stands, cafes, coffee shops. You could buy it from taxi drivers, bellhops, your neighbor, anywhere. And throughout Prohibition, r- restaurants would openly serve liquor in coffee cups or other opaque glassware. Mm. A few... Prominent restaurants were padlocked for a year for multiple violations of the National Prohibition Act, most notably Commander's Palace, Arnaud's, and Tujac's, all of which are still around today.
0: And padlocked meant they literally put a padlock on the door? They literally
1: put a padlock on the door and closed down the restaurant. Yeah. So this is what would usually happen. A group of prohibition agents would plan to raid, say, a cluster of eight to ten places in a night. And the data supports this. If you look at the dates and locations of places raided, they tend to be grouped together in the same neighborhood, within often within a few blocks of each other or even next to each other. This happens several times a month, but it would get crazy around the holidays. And often the names and addresses of those raided and or arrested would be published in the Times-Picayune. I don't know why they did this. Maybe they thought it would be a deterrent. <laughs> And it didn't work if it yeah. was. <laughs>
0: I imagine it was kind of like uh, how they publish the names of drunk drivers these days. But I'm sure a lot of people wore it as a badge of honor, especially mm-hmm. in New Orleans.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and still, and they still do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this place was raided during Prohibition. <laughs> um, so as a result of this, an entire language and culture develops within these mm-hmm. places. Bartenders and bar patrons develop systems of tipping each other off if Prohibition agents entered the establishment. In one cabaret in New Orleans, the band would suddenly switch the music to How Dry I Am, which is part of a song, um, The Near Future, written by Irving Berlin (laughs) in 1919. Wow. So And some of the lyrics go, how dry I am, how dry I am, it's plain to see just why I am. Oh, how I call for alcohol, and that is why so dry I am. I hear you calling me, I am the spirit of alcohol, for let me assure you one and all, I'm not dead, I'm only asleep, someday I'll come back to you.
0: Wow. <laughs> it's That's really cool. dark. <laughs> yeah. I guess Irving Berlin was uh, not super happy about Prohibition.
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> There are a number of stories of restaurants and drinking establishments that have elaborate systems of hidden doors and booby traps for prohibition agents.
0: Yeah, there's one of the the headlines that came across in the archive was uh, from 1926 at 718 Gravier Street. And it reads, weekend raids bear elaborate liquor caches, electrically operated trap doors hide fine rum supply. Yep. So what surprised you as you've been doing this research and going through this archive.
1: One thing that shocked me in my research was the amount of private homes and residences that were raided. The practice of home brewing became almost universal in New Orleans during this time. People would set up soft drink stands on the street and sell beverages from them, alcoholic and otherwise. Prohibition agents would walk around neighborhoods and literally sniff around. If they thought they smelled liquor, it would be reason enough to raise your home.
0: Hmm. Prohibition uh, definitely undermined the Fourth Amendment, in many ways presaging the modern system of uh, the war on drugs, mass incarceration. I came across an article entitled Prohibition and the Fourth Amendment by Kenneth Murchison of Northwestern University. He writes, quote, Prohibition drastically increased the caseloads of federal courts and ushered in a widespread system of plea bargaining. Its enforcement filled the government's antiquated prisons and stimulated the construction of new penal facilities. The flood of prohibition decisions required lawyers to integrate the 18th Amendment into existing law by creating new doctrines and stimulating the refinement of relatively undeveloped areas. He later notes that, quote, During the Prohibition era, the court was considerably less generous in extending the reach of the Fourth Amendment. For example, in 1924, Hester v. United States, the court circumscribed the amendment's reach by distinguishing lawful observations of enforcement authorities from searches and by excluding open fields surrounding a house from the amendment's protection. In another case, Olmsted versus The United States, the court held 5-4 to four that warrantless wiretapping of private telephones was not a violation of the Fourth Amendment, a case which would not be overturned until 1967. And uh, another relatively new technology at this time was the automobile, and in another case very relevant to the later War on Drugs Enforcement, the court gave the police the right to search a vehicle without a warrant if they had probable cause to believe that it contained contraband, that it contained something that could be confiscated, which in this case was alcohol.
1: On top of that, one thing that I didn't expect was the amount of Italians or those of Italian descent and Italian last names whose homes were raided, particularly in the early to mid-1920s. Not much has changed in the sense that immigrants got blamed for everything. Right. John Appleby, who was Louisiana's chief prohibition agent in 1922, claimed that 70% of bootleggers arrested in New Orleans were foreign born. Wow. Half of whom, quote, have arrived in recent months solely to reap profits from illegally manufactured wine and whiskey. He demands that all immigrants be deported because small fines or short jail sentences will not check bootleg traffic among aliens. Drastic action is needed. In my opinion, the man who sells rotten booze, which poisons American citizens causing death or blindness is as great a menace as the anarchist.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty familiar. Um, Xenophobia was very much a justification for Prohibition. Um, The rise of the temperance movement coincided with one of the largest waves of European immigration to the US. It was during Prohibition that Congress also passed dramatic restrictions on immigration. Stories of drunken immigrants committing rape or violence or spread by teetotalers. It's also worth remembering that the temperance movement was very much associated with Protestant Christians and a lot of these immigrant groups such as Italians were mostly Catholic. So it's not surprising at all that it was used as a tool to target groups that were seen as undesirable. When you have a law on the books that a big chunk of society is violating, chances are the police are going to target the people who will be the most popular to target and have the least political power to resist. New Orleans itself was actually the site of uh, some pretty serious xenophobia. In 1891, it was the site of the most deadly mass lynching incident in American history and the victims were actually Italian immigrants. So in 1890, the city's police chief, David Hennessy, was shot. The assailants were not captured. Hennessy supposedly whispered the word dagos before he died, uh, which is an ethnic slur of Italians. Um, and this was enough evidence to precipitate a mass roundup of dozens of Italians on very little evidence. Um, New Orleans was actually one of the first cities to have a mafia presence, so the murder was blamed on the mob. The national attention that the case gathered was actually the first time that many Americans ever heard of the mafia. Mobsters may or may not have actually been behind the murder, but regardless, there was little evidence on any of the men who were arrested. I believe seven were charged, of which four were acquitted, and the other three, there was a mistrial declared. So after this verdict, a mob stormed into the prison and murdered every Italian they could get their hands on. Um, 11... Uh, Italians were killed, and the case was used to stoke anti-immigrant sentiment around the country. It also apparently created a serious diplomatic rift between Italy and the U.S. And Teddy Roosevelt, I believe, wrote a letter to his sister saying that the quote Dago ambassadors complained to him, and he said, "I thought it was probably a good thing this lynching, and I told them as much."
1: I didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I knew about the the lynching, but like not about the letter from Roosevelt. Wow.
0: Yeah, New Orleans also, uh, the, the organized crime history is pretty interesting. New Orleans' Prohibition-era godfather was a character named Silver Dollar Sam Corolla. Silver Dollar Sam built a smuggling operation that reached all the way to Chicago, where he ran afoul of Al Capone for selling to Capone's rival, the Sicilian mobster Joe Aiello. Capone took a trip down to New Orleans to confront him, and Silver Dollar Sam met them at the train station with a compliment of New Orleans police officers he had bought off. The Crooked Cops Broke Capone's Bodyguard's Fingers and Sent Them Packing Back to Chicago, which is uh, breaking uh, Al Capone's bodyguard's fingers is a pretty testament to the power of an organized crime boss. (laughs) Um, I'd say. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, speaking of organized crime, what sense do you have of sort of the breakdown of raids in terms of were they targeting mostly organized crime or small bootlegging operations or just people homebrewing their own stuff?
1: Well, most of my research has been focusing on the ways in which individual citizens private citizens have been affected right. and largely those citizens were not involved with the mob mm. with the mob or the mafia but the rise of prohibition rates through the 20s absolutely led people to that lifestyle right
0: yeah i mean definitely when you i found when you look through the archive you really see like a big range of crackdowns like some of them it literally was just somebody brewing beer Mm -hmm. or making wine in their house or a small still whereas other ones are very clearly large operations like Mm -hmm. i found one um, in the archive this is the jb kessler salvage company Mm. the description says quote 221 south peter street what is believed to be the south's greatest source of supply for illicit alcohol was shut off yesterday when Prohibition's agents raided the J.B. Kessler Salvage Company and found the largest distillery discovered in New Orleans since Prohibition went into effect. The giant plant contained nine huge vats of mash feeding the still and occupied three floors of a four-story building. It was an operation turning out alcohol at the rate of more than two thousand gallons a week, so that clearly uh, had some some major crime going on there. And the, the fact that they were using like a salvage company as a decoy just reminds you of like Breaking Bad and like all those. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of cover that you'd be using for a drug operation today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it does seem that that the Timesiki Union makes the claim that it is the largest. Distillery found since the inception of prohibition they they make that claim several times a year. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, I don't know if like each one is you know exponentially worse than the next, right uh, or, or if the it was last. just a good
0: headline to sell newspapers. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's so many. And like so many uh, large distilleries discovered in abandoned warehouses yeah. uh, that they never find the source of, and they can speculate. but yeah. um, there are lots of those as well. You can find those in the archive too.
0: Cool. I'm also curious about the role of gender in all this. Um, Prohibition is interesting in the history of gender relations in the U.S. Um, The temperance movement and the women's suffrage movement were actually pretty closely linked, partly because alcohol was associated with domestic violence. A lot of stories were publicized about working class men who spent all their money on booze instead of taking care of their families. And then also, before Prohibition, bars were often boys clubs. They were male-only spaces with the exception of like waitresses and courtesans. But Prohibition uh, disrupted the social norm around bars. Since now, no one was technically supposed to be there at all. So, and women were also becoming more independent. They had taken on a bigger role in the workforce uh, during World War I. And you had the whole flapper culture that emerged. So um, while prohibition didn't end alcoholism or domestic violence, it did succeed in bringing women into the bar. So I'm wondering how you think all this played out in New Orleans. Um, How frequently were women arrested as uh, speakeasy patrons or Mm -hmm. bootleggers?
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things that you see in the historical record is that at the beginning of prohibition, you don't see very many women at Mm -hmm. all. But as you get into 1925, 1926, yeah. you see more and more women are huh. popping up in the headlines. And, and, like, they make a show of it, too. The times Union say, like, two women were arrested at the bar, you know. Um, right,
0: like it's scandalous that they're even there. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and you also see... A, a, Especially towards the end of the 20s, um, more women bootleggers. Hmm. Um, even though there were relatively small operations, yeah. um, there are still records of, I want to say over a hundred female bootleggers wow. uh, in New Orleans, starting you know like I want to say around like 1926 hmm. or so to the end of prohibition, which cool. is really interesting.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really interesting pattern that mm-hmm. you can actually see that happening.
1: Yeah. Um, and so this is uh, from this fantastic article by Tanya Marie Sanchez uh, called The Feminine Side of Bootlegging, which is the awesome. history of women bootleggers huh. in Louisiana. For a lot of working class mothers, uh, bootlegging was a convenient and lucrative method of providing a meager income for their families mm. during prohibition.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine in the years between the beginning of the Depression and the end of Prohibition, that became all the more important.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Though you do see, particularly starting like around 1930, end of 1931, Prohibition laws beginning to lax, Mm. you see more articles dealing with organized crime rather than individual citizens. Mm.
0: What sense do you have of how or if uh, Prohibition altered drinking culture, drinking habits in New Orleans?
1: One of the things that I think it did was bring together men and women in drinking establishments. Yeah, and I think it also altered, well, in general, it altered the way that we mix drinks because people had to mix something sweet with the bathtub hooch that they were right, making. Right, right. You had to, <laughs> yeah,
0: because a, a lot of this stuff, you know, was either being, uh, you know, home distilled mm-hmm. and. Poor quality, or they would smuggle it in, but then like water it down with crap, mm-hmm. um, turpentine, whatever, because there's no quality control anymore.
1: Yeah, and so when you look at cocktail manuals from New Orleans in the night from the 1930s, they're just full of like really sweet drinks. Yeah, and that continues, I guess, through the 50s. And, yeah,
0: the, <laughs> um, Well,
1: I guess it still does. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said that that you know there's there's kind of a cultural perception that prohibition led to a almost a golden age of drinking because we think about the Great Gatsby and stories romanticized stories from that era but in terms of like the actual quality of what people are drinking and the craft of of cocktail making a lot of people have said that that prohibition really devastated that and that American cocktails didn't really recover until just now until the 2000s Um, that like we're just getting back to the point that we were at in the early 1900s, or a lot of people say the 1890s, was really the golden age of the mm-hmm. cocktail. Yeah. So how do you think New Orleans' political system responded to prohibition?
1: So there's this great line that Huey P. Long said when asked how he would enforce prohibition yeah. when he was elected governor in 1932. And like when asked how he would enforce prohibition, yeah. he said, I'm not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so by and large, uh, local politicians were not happy to enforce prohibition.
1: Many weren't. I mean, yeah. New Orleans was overwhelmingly wet, yeah. uh, whereas outside of New Orleans and many of the legislatures in Louisiana were were very dry. It did end up passing in 1919. Yeah. So, um, So you do have a lot of dry politicians mm-hmm. in state government, but in New Orleans itself, mm-hmm. You have a lot of people who are very unhappy about these
0: right yeah that makes sense because i mean to this day there's a big divide between new orleans remains a much more liberal city than the the rest of louisiana
1: oh yeah yeah
0: um yeah and and huey long of course was a really interesting historical character so he was governor of louisiana for a while and also senator was a big sort of left-wing populist in the last year of his life which i believe was 1935 he Planned to challenge Franklin Roosevelt uh, from the left on you know, a left wing third party candidate, but he was also accused by a lot of people of being an authoritarian, being very corrupt, of being willing to use really heavy handed tactics. When I was researching Silver Dollar Sam Corolla, the two of them did work together on some bringing <laughs> slot <philosophizing>. machines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they worked together to bring slot machines to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and then he was uh, assassinated. By, I believe, one of his, the the brother in law of a judge who he was upset with, and he was trying to strip Mm -hmm. the judge of the position, and the judge's son in law shot him, um, and that ended his presidential campaign. I believe the movie All the King's Men is based on Huey Long. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, he he took on, I mean, he was, he took on the oil companies, and like, he was the worst and the best Louisianians in terms (laughs) of politicians.
0: Yeah. He was, uh, yeah, his program was called Share Our Wealth, and the Mm -hmm. idea was, uh Every Man King. yeah yeah and there would be both a minimum and maximum income essentially mm-hmm. like that everyone would be guaranteed a certain income and that also there are over a certain amount there would be a 99 percent tax or something like that mm-hmm. so it was it was real egalitarianism um, but he also always very heavily refuted the idea that he was a, a communist um he said my my program's the only thing that would stand between america and a mm-hmm. communist revolution
1: and there's a great story about how Huey Long, when trying to pass legislation as a senator, yeah. um, brought bartenders from the Roosevelt Hotel to make to make Ramos gen fizzes for the <laughs> entire legislature wow. to get to get every, to get what he <laughs> wanted passed.
0: So what's uh what's the most fun story you've come across reading all these prohibition raid stories?
1: So one of my favorite favorite headlines that I found is from 14th of January, 1931. And the headline is, Orgy of Drinking Found by Agents Raiding Barroom. Old woman picked up from floor as youth flees scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Prohibition agents, um, quote, ran into an orgy of drinking and carousing early Tuesday morning when they raided a bar room at Uh, 517 south roman street the agents picked an old woman up from the floor and revived her and another customer a 19 year old boy fled from the scene he was captured and when it was shown that he was only a customer he was released Hmm. i think that's i think it's just a sort of a ridiculous headline yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: orgy of drinking
1: (laughs) Uh, there, there are some, there's some gems in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you just
0: go on Intemperance.org and search around, and you'll, you'll find some fun headlines. You, you recently helped turn this into an exhibit at the Museum of the American Cocktail, which is also in New Orleans. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So, the, the exhibit at the Museum of the American Cocktail is just an interactive exhibit that where visitors can click on a raid. Um, and read more about it. It's just almost the same thing. It's a little bit more complete. um, And you can also divide it by year. Mm. When I visited the Southern Food and Beverage Museum about a year ago and I Mm -hmm. told them about my research and when I finished my project, I sent it to them and they loved it and they asked if they could include it in their prohibition section of the the museum. And so I was like, yes, (laughs) absolutely, please.
0: That's awesome. And this is gonna be there permanently as far as we know?
1: I, as long as they want it, they can have it. <laughs>
0: awesome. So yeah, if you're ever in New Orleans, definitely check out the Museum of the American Cocktail. Do you have uh, anything you hope to pursue in the cocktail history realm going forward?
1: I'm I'm really interested in the way in which drinking affects our perceptions of space mm. and cities and and also identity. Um, And so I'm really, as I go forward, I really hope to begin researching how, as drinking and drinking practices cross borders, uh, how that affects the way that people see themselves and see their food culture and um, the way that they see a city or the space in which they live.
0: Cool. I very much look forward to seeing what you do next. So I like to end every episode with a cocktail recipe. So what is your favorite cocktail?
1: Um, my favorite cocktail is the Vieux Carré, uh, which is an homage to New Orleans's really diverse history.
0: Yeah, the Vieux Carré is a really delicious drink, um, and it's named after the French Quarter of New Orleans, mm-hmm. the French name for it, right? Yes. It was invented in 1938 by Walter Bergeron at the Carousel Bar at the Hotel Monteleone in New Orleans, which is still there, which I believe is in the Old Business District It's area. actually
1: in the French Quarter. It's ah, in the Vieux cool. Carré.
0: So it's equal parts rye, cognac, and sweet vermouth. So you've got the quintessential tastes of America, France, and Italy right there, plus some Benedictine, which is also French, and Pichaud's bitters, which were, of course, invented in New Orleans. Um, So to make a view courier, you're going to mix three-quarters ounce each of rye, cognac, and sweet vermouth, a bar spoon, which is around a teaspoon or a teaspoon and a half, of Benedictine, and two dashes each of Angostura and Pichaud's bitters. You stir it with ice and strain it, and you've got a viqueuray. And uh, do you prefer it with a cherry garnish or a lemon twist?
1: Cherry garnish. Yeah,
0: me too. But by the imported maraschino cherry, is not the grocery store kind.
1: Yeah, 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 or, <laughs> or maybe even a luxardo cherry if you want to exactly. get really fancy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. That's that's another another topic for another episode is <laughs> how these awful, pumped full of chemicals and dyes, uh, cherries in the grocery store are allowed to be called. Uh, Maraschino—that's actually also an interesting story about U.S. Italy relations, trademark law, and uh, xenophobia from the early 1900s. Um, So that'll be in a a future episode. So, Hannah, thanks so much for joining me, and listeners can check out the Intemperance Archive at Intemperance.org.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: So, I hope you've enjoyed this more conversational-style episode. I'll be back to my usual format for the next episode, which is one that I've been researching for a long time, The History of the Origin of Distillation. It's a story I tried to tell back in episode 1, but as it turns out, a lot of the information in my sources was incorrect. In fact, it's a story that almost every book one can find on the topic seems to get wrong. I've spent a lot of time over the past months dredging through scholarly papers and obscure source material, and I still have a lot of questions, but I do have enough information that I think it will make for an interesting story that touches on a lot of fascinating history, including Alexander the Great's invasion of India, the alchemists of Roman Egypt and medieval Europe, the cult of Dionysus, and maybe even the Mongols. Stay tuned for that. I'm not going to give a release date yet, but it should be out in the next month. As always, you can find more information related to this episode, including recipes for the view Cure and the Ramos Gin Fizz on our website, chpodcast.com, and find the Intemperance archive online at intemperance.org. Follow me on Twitter at cocktailhistpod, follow Intemperance Archive on Twitter at drinkingarchive, and find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash cocktailhistory. If you like the show, please take the time to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. Until next time, I'm Sam Eilerton. Our theme music was composed by Harry Aspinwall. Additional music for this episode from the New Orleans Rhythm Kings and Joseph and Cleoma Falcon. Thanks again to Hannah Griggs for joining me on this episode. Have yourself a view curé, and remember that unlike cocktails, history is something you can never have too much of.